this week had a great conversation about science and the actual beauty and purity of science and scientific investigation with Wallace Thornhill. Now Wallace is the Vice President of the Thunderbolts Project and in this we talk about his concept around the electrical universe. What makes this conversation so much fun and really enjoyable and it's a really delicate conversation is that Wallace has done most of his research and and journeying and investigation and exploration outside of university and what this conversation really I got from it was a real sort of falling back in love with science and how we can do our own little scientific experiments endeavors in our own garage and investigate things for ourselves rather than just leaving it to the scientists in universities with great you know letters after their name so Watch this, enjoy this, and I'm really interested to see how you go with it. So enjoy, Wallace. Hello and welcome back to WA Real. I'm your host, Bryn Edwards. WA Real holds a space to follow the oldest form of learning, that of listening to the stories and the experience of those around us. Why? So we can explore these stories to find out our own truth and our own sense of self. self. Today, we're going to look at a completely new paradigm of how we look at the universe, and one that is approachable to all of us. We're going to do that with my guest today, Wallace Thornhill. Wallace, welcome to the show. Thanks very much for the invitation, Bryn. Thank you. Thank you. So, um, before we jump into the um, what is the electrical universe, can you give me just a, a quick uh, pricey of your of your background because that in and of itself is is kind of interesting and raises some fun questions and stuff <laughs> okay yeah uh well i was born and bred in melbourne uh went to melbourne university and completed a degree in science and began uh, a fourth year under professor victor hopper uh and but it was part way through that year that i realized i had uh no hope of uh, advancing in the academic world because I was asking questions that people didn't like. <laughs> and uh, so I joined uh, IBM as a scientific programmer and then went on to become a systems engineer at the National University in Canberra. I was transferred up here uh, way back in 1967 at the time when the uh, moon landings and everything were happening. So did working for IBM give the opportunity to ask those questions? <clears throat> Well, I certainly interested uh, some of the people who worked with me <laughs> and they would ask me, why are you here? You know, <laughs> yeah, and I said, well, the, the work's good and the pay's good. It's very interesting. <laughs> I said uh, where I was going was going nowhere. Uh, nobody was interested in what I was interested in. What, what was that at that stage? <laughs> well, when I was at high school, this is back in the mid fifties. Uh, I, uh, my father brought home a book. He was in and out of Heidelberg Hospital. He was a, a TPI pensioner. And uh, he said, I think you might be interested in this book. He knew I was very interested in astronomy. I used to memorize facts out of the encyclopedia and bore the kids at school witless with <laughs> yeah. recitations from the uh, encyclopedia. Uh, but it was Emmanuel Velikovsky's Worlds in Collision. Right had become a bestseller for six months in New York on in uh, I think the New York Times um, bestseller but uh, boy it was uh, it certainly um, you know through the 
cat amongst the pigeons um, for the astronomers, in particular Harlow Shapley, who was one of the leading astronomers of the day, and he became, according to Fred Hoyle, almost uh, uh, incoherent. <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, because, of course, uh, as I've learned over the years, uh, our cosmology is just another form of religion. It's right. a creation story. It's miraculous. It has no re uh, relevance to physics at all. And, uh, of course, <clears throat> nice when, I, when I found out uh, his work, he I realized later that he taught me how to do real science. And that is the old classical way where you were trained in all sorts of things. You know, Latin, uh, history and uh, the classics and all this kind of stuff. Nowadays, with specialization, um, we are more or less brought up with complete tunnel vision. Right. And so the experts that we have now, and we've sort of developed a cult of expert, cult of the expert, it's called. <laughs> um, we uh, sort of submit to expert opinion when in fact their, their opinions are often very ill-informed. Mm because they cannot see any kind of big picture. There is no university on earth that teaches the big picture where it shows how everything fits together. And as a result, uh, the, um, the science of today is incoherent. Mm. Uh, but all of these ideas, of course, many years later uh, came together because I just pursued my main interest. And that was to uh, actually understand and be able to explain what Velikovsky had shown, and that is that within human memory, not in historical times, as Worlds in Collision suggests, but within human memory, mankind has witnessed some incredible things in the sky, including uh, planets hurling thunderbolts, as they call them, the thunderbolts of the gods. Yeah. And uh, apparently the earth was involved to the extent that it created tremendous damage on earth and traumatized the human race, those that survived. And we still have this kind of imprinted or um, what you might call a kind of instinctive inherited uh, post-traumatic stress disorder and a fear of doomsday. Yes. The end of the world. And you see it wow. repeated all the time. And fear is one of the biggest words that you'll see used in newspapers and uh, all that kind of thing in the media oh, yeah. to try and drive people to do things because <clears throat> it's one of the key drivers of mankind. Yes. Now, Carl Jung, uh, the famous um, psychoanalyst, uh, said as a result of his work, uh, which was with thousands and thousands of uh, psychiatric patients, that they all had these themes which kept coming through, which he called an archetypal memory. Yes. And the archetypes are all ones to do with uh, this half-remembered past, which we keep suppressing. And the problem there, as Velikovsky saw it, because he was a, a leading psychoanalyst uh, and uh, polymath, you might say, because he could... He covered the ground. He was a classical scholar. Yes. Um, he identified it and said that uh, it appears that we uh, suffer from a kind of amnesia, the whole human race. Yes. 
And uh, so he identified what Carl Jung had recognized and also explained it, which uh, was phenomenal, really. And that is that uh, we, as amnesiacs, have this subconscious memory of doomsday, the end of the world, and we'll all die, we'll all be judged, and, you know, watch out, <laughs> watch out for the end of the world and the signs of its coming. Yeah. Um, and the problem with that kind of amnesia is that there is a tendency on the sufferer to want to subconsciously or to visit, revisit the events in a way which is safe. So we have all these disaster movies and we have these uh, monster movies, you know, with um, Godzilla and, uh, and these creatures that are so, so much more powerful than us, you know, the superheroes. Oh, yeah, all this kind of stuff. And uh, throughout my life, I've had a number of um, things which were the end, going to be the end of the world. First of all, was a nuclear winter. Mm. And then we were going to have an ice age. That was back in the 80s, uh, I think it was. Uh, and then it was Comet Impact and Space Guard and all of these kinds of things were set up. <laughs> and people have forgotten about that. And now it's uh, global warming and the global pandemic. And this yeah. existential fear is a real problem mm. uh, because it, I think, is at the heart of uh, our misunderstanding of religions. In fact, religions are not an answer to anything. They're the biggest question mark facing mankind. You know, yes. What gave birth to them? And my colleague, Dave Talbot, who was an American uh, who I first met in 1974, and 20 years later, in 1994, after he'd published a book called The Saturn Myth, I was invited by him to come and speak at his first international meeting where his film, Remembering the End of the World, was uh, premiered. And he, at the time, felt that this, uh, because it explains all of these subconscious memories so that you should kind of identify it, uh, and uh, it has a huge impact on people. He thought that it would go viral. And I'm pleased that it didn't because we were ill prepared at that stage to do anything with it. Yes. Anyway, after I saw his work, <clears throat> I it's went and said to him, uh, you may not remember, we first met 20 years ago at a conference in Canada. <clears throat> it was at the first International Velikotsky Conference. And I cashed in insurance policies and everything here to go and see it. <clears throat> and uh, but at that meeting he was one of the people who was organizing it uh, and uh, we both talked about you know uh, all sorts of things other than you know cabbages and kings instead of uh, <laughs> what was really bugging us at the time so in, 19, in uh, 1994 in Portland Oregon where this conference was held I went up to him caught up with him in a lift actually at the hotel and uh, told him we'd met 20 years earlier and he vaguely remembered it <laughs> and I said I've seen your work and I think we should work together nice. that began an association that's lasted ever since uh, and he when he began presenting his material after that recognized that the common aspect between his uh, research into the myths and legends around the world and the religions and creation myths that the thunderbolt was the thing that tied the two together because my work was called the electric universe in fact the very first time i presented it was 
two years later, I camped on his office floor and while the rain dripped outside in Portland <laughs> uh, for a month before we had uh, our first international uh, meeting in Portland, Oregon, 1997. So that was the start of uh, really this whole thing. And it's been a, a hell of an adventure. And yeah, so it sounds it. <laughs> and the most interesting thing, just before we move on any further, the interesting thing is that um, a lot of that was because you're de-shackled from the requirements of academia in universities. Yes, I recognise that um, the hostility or disinterest at the university um, was uh, meant that I had no real future there. You know, to get on there, you've got to join in and uh, play to the same uh, song sheet. Mm. And I've had um, on the podcast previously, um, uh, Dr. Lynn Beasley, who was the chief scientist of Western Australia. And, mm. um, you know, part of her career is um, thankful to a tutor who gave her the latitude to go and ask some difficult questions, but she recognised mm. by and large you had to kowtow to get mm. somewhere. So, yeah, and, and, and likewise myself, having been to university and then wanting to go back mm. not so long ago and then realising, oh, it's not necessarily the place for me, and now no. we're in the podcast. Yeah, that's right. So, uh, and, and I think it's, it's worthwhile just spending a second with that point because <clears throat> there will be a lot of people out there who see science as a very individual focused um, specialist thing. Mm. Well, I like your concept of the classical scientist who looks at all things so very widely. I mm. think I probably resonate with that having such a varied educational and, and experienced background. But then it just makes science so much more approachable to people. Mm. Um, you know, it's I, I, get, I feel sometimes that science has become almost like this 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 religion in and of itself. If the high priest scientist with the PhD says, you know, thou shalt rub this on the back of your ear, and scientists have said, then you'll go and do it. And you, yeah. what's the difference between that and the high priest in the Greek mythology? Mm -hmm. And and but you know, if you dial back from it, science is 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 a way of us to investigate. It's a very mind orientated mm -hmm. game as opposed to a whole embodying type of thing. Yeah. And um, sometimes I just think it, it loses its place, but at the same time, it then shuts itself off from the everyday person to investigate science by themselves. Even if it's repeating a, an experiment in the garage that somebody's done before, just so you can actually see, feel, and experience it yourself, let alone go and ask further questions. That's right. Yes, I've uh, found a number of people who've uh, been inspired by what I do, uh, who have performed their own um, garage experiments, and uh, with great success. You know, they've got YouTube channels and that showing uh, the effects of electrical scarring on um, planetary type surfaces. I did the first ones back in the 1990s here in Canberra, actually. I had a high voltage engineer who became interested in what I was doing and uh, he had a garage with equipment that looked like that film Back to, back to the Future, you know, with a mad scientist. Yeah. <laughs> he had every, every piece of electrical equipment you could imagine. And uh, so, and he had a lot of fun too, because he learned some things because I would ask questions that he hadn't thought of. And so, oh, we'll try that and see what happens. 
And um, of course, this is the way uh, that individuals contribute to science because uh, all all the great breakthroughs have come from individuals, not from the great teams of scientists working with a multi-billion-dollar facility. Uh, it's the pe people who think and then try. Yeah. Mm. So here's the big leading question. Tell me about the electrical universe. <laughs> well, uh, interestingly enough, while science has gone off with more and more complication, they introduced more and more imaginary forces and particles and whatnot to keep the story going. Uh, the electric universe was born out of the notion of classical physics, and that is one of simplification. Hmm. I'm not looking to complicate things more uh, because that more or less establishes your priesthood. Only they understand it. Uh, yeah. I thought if I can't understand it, the universe is not deliberately trying to be difficult. Uh, I love that. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> it's, it's we who make it so because of our uh, desire for control, control over others, control over information, all those kinds of things. Uh, I've always shared what I know or what I think I know at every step, simply on the basis that uh, I'm happy to be uh, pointed out where I've made a mistake or there's something else I should consider and maybe I haven't got the whole story right. And this has happened continually uh, throughout my um, career because I did recognize at that 1994 meeting that I mentioned that there was no way I could do this on my own. And having made that decision, and also the decision uh, at that meeting was the pioneers who got me to where I was then, one had died, another one was too ill to come. And I thought, well, uh, who else is going to do this if I don't? And Shit, it's just me. <laughs> yeah. So I, I made the big decision at that meeting, and all, that was why I approached Dave Talbot, and I said, you and I should work together. Um, and it's proved to be uh, quite an amazing uh, partnership. I haven't mentioned David Talbot and what he actually contributed, and that is that he took Velikovsky's approach to the analysis of myth and creation myths and history. And in some of his, the last work he did, he pointed out that strangely enough, right around the world, all of the ancient races, the most ancient sources we, we have, were adamant that Saturn, the ringed planet, was a former sun. Yeah. It was our former sun. In fact, the words that are used for the sun, you know, soul and helios, the, the classical uh, words for the sun, all originally applied to Saturn when we just transferred to the sun. Yes. Now, that is a mind blowing thing to come across. Yes. And it was the discoveries of David Talbot and a couple of other uh, mytho historians, we call them. Uh, I felt that they had sufficient evidence, and the evidence is overwhelming, that this was so, that my job then was to try and understand that scientifically. I've always done the science, uh, you know, trying to make sense of the science. And it's in doing that, that I've managed to figure out how gravity works and that there is only a single force you need to deal with in the universe, and that's the electric force. The electric force. Yeah, magnetism, gravity, the nuclear forces are all manifestations of the electric force. 
And the reason that they're different is that at different scales, uh, the the important aspect of how matter behaves in response to the electric force will develop at the atomic level, uh, subatomic level, the magnetic force, and at a lower level again, the gravitational force, and you can keep going down in levels, and the next one deals with um, uh, the precession of Mercury's orbit, uh, and so on. And all of this, I discovered only in the last year or two, uh, matches uh, the research of uh, a German scientist, Wilhelm Weber, one of the top yes. classical physicists, uh, experimental physicists too, I should point out, not just theoretical. And yes. he developed a more general form of Coulomb's law. You know, Coulomb's law gives you the equation that tells you the force between two charged particles. Yes. It's a static uh, formula though. The two charged particles aren't moving. What Weber did was to say, let's assume, make it general. Say the two forces are moving with respect to one another and they're accelerating and um, <clears throat> they are different masses and they can be either the same charge or different charges. So, and by doing that, 40 years before the phys top physicists in the UK figured out how an atom was constructed, he had done it with his uh, electrodynamic law. Instead of electrostatics, this is electrodynamics. Things are moving. Everything in the universe is moving. Yes. Um, and uh, when I recognized that, I thought we were within a hair's breadth of the electric universe right there. Wow. And of course, after goodness knows how many decades of research to actually come to that point where you go right back to, and you look at history, this is it, history's important. You have to know why we made the decisions we made back in, you know, at Einstein's time and other, you know, the, the times of other people. You have to look at the context and what was going on at the time, what these people were doing and what others thought. You can't just accept what an expert says that, you know, now hear this, you know. Yes. <laughs> Uh, that's the result of a show of hands and science isn't done democratically. You know, it's either right or it's wrong. And yet a lot of the science today, uh, there's a lot of people with their hands up saying, hang on, hang on. I think you've got it wrong, but they're not being paid attention to. They're not allowed to publish in the big journals. They are censored. And so you've got this sort of subculture of thousands of scientists around the world who know science is in real trouble and are busily putting forward ideas. And I see a lot of them because they write to me and say, what do you think of this? Um, but generally the fault that all of them uh, make is to uh, use the same language that uh, scientists are using now. And a lot of it is meaningless. Yes. It's quite amazing to understand that we have no definition for things like mass or energy and we declare things a universal constant, like the universal constant of gravitation, when we don't know what gravity is. Mm. You know, Einstein did away with the force of gravity. Try telling that to somebody who's fallen over and hurt themselves. And even those constants change. And the constants aren't constant. The I was watching, I was watching a, a, a lecture with um, Dr. Rupert Sheldrake. Yes. And he was explaining how he started getting curious about 
constants mm. and how gravity changes. And it's like, well, how does, if it's a constant, how does that happen? <laughs> <laughs> That's right. They force it to be a constant by defining your standards in terms of the speed of light. Indeed. And this is crazy. So if we can just take a pause there. So let me get this straight. Um, all the forces that we're aware of, electromagnetic, nuclear, gravity, mm. are one form of electricity or another, or one level of electricity. They all respond, yeah, it's all the response to of matter to the electric force. Right. So there's a couple of questions that jump out there for me. Mm -hmm. um, first one is, is what is electricity then? Ah, uh, well... <clears throat> And this is where I'm quite happy to say that at present we do not know. Right. Uh, for instance, uh, they talk about uh, the electric universe and the electrical power, which is obviously uh, universal. And they say, where does it come from? And I say, I don't know. All we can do is say what we observe. And what yes. we observe in the universe is that there are these uh, electrical currents flowing all over the place, this, this web that they call uh, is only possible if they are actually delineating electric currents because gravity doesn't form strings of things. It, um, it forms clumps, you know. Uh, and with that realisation, uh, you can then, um, you can build a, a whole new cosmology. Yeah. And the, the beauty of doing that is that you have now tied your cosmology to human experience, dating right back to the earliest memories of the Egyptians and uh, you know the earliest civilizations. The Australian Aborigines have some of the best stories around, the most accurate ones, because they remember their things in terms of song and dance uh, and ritual, rather than words, which can be misinterpreted. Hmm. And uh, so this is, this is real cosmology. Cosmology is often called the queen of the sciences, which means that everything has to fit underneath. But right now, the cosmologists don't pay any attention to anyone else but themselves, uh, which means that what they say is of no use to us. You know, it's all very, makes a good story, a good science fiction story, but it has no actual use for us. It doesn't tell us why we're here, what life is, uh, what we, uh, what our place is in the universe with respect to everything else, where, whether there is life in the universe and what would it be like? These questions are unanswerable with uh, modern science. Um, it also, uh, because they are restricted to a gravitational cosmology, that is one which they think requires things, matter to attract other matter, and that's all yeah. it does. It cannot do anything else. So they're restricted to explosions to spread matter out and, and then collisions when it all falls back again, uh, which is a pretty crackpot theory when you think about it. And one of the top astronomers of the 20th century uh, who was prevented from um, using telescopes once he uh, published his, or tried to publish his or original discoveries, pointed out that no, uh, when you look out there, the universe is in balance. It's not expanding, which meant, as he said, that means that gravity must have a repulsive aspect to it. Otherwise, the whole thing would just collapse. It can't just sit there, you know. 
And of course, uh, the scientists, well, I mean, the astronomer priests didn't like that one little bit because it destroyed their Big Bang story. Mm. And, uh, Everything's expanding out. Yeah. Back in again. Yeah, one of the, the top scientists of the time, Subramanian Chandrasekhar, um, uh, scribbled across the top of um, Helton Arp's uh, contribution and said, this exceeds my imagination. Well, that's what science is all about. You know, if it exceeds your imagination, get out of the way and let the person who's imagining it have a go. Mm. <laughs> so how does how does this apply to the everyday person? What how does it how does the older um, perception of cosmology and, and physics affect our reality and how does this oh, change that so it has that it has a huge impact when you think about it modern cosmology is a hopeless one and i mean hopeless mm. uh, simply because it all started with the big bang and then the end is it's all if it's going to expand and accelerate expansion it'll all end up all the lights will all wink out and it's just darkness you know good night mm. well that's a hopeless cosmology also it paints us as being um, on an isolated little ball of rock uh, orbiting around an insignificant star in an insignificant galaxy amongst trillions of others. Uh, the sense of isolation, both in space and time, is overwhelming. Whereas the electric universe, which, as I said now, um, is based on Wilhelm Weber's mathematics, in that theory, and also in Coulomb's law, time isn't involved. Now that is profound. Mm. It means that Einstein's idea that you cannot transfer information at anything faster than the speed of light is nonsense. It means that we are a part of a connected, conscious universe. Now that changes everything. That means that we're yeah. a manifestation of the consciousness of the universe. And you say, well, why are we here? And you say, well, you are the self-referential part of that universe. We are able to witness, experience, and what we witness and experience is not lost because it's fed back to the universe. Yes. And we manifest, in my opinion, with a purpose. But it's very quickly knocked out of us when we're very little, quite often. <laughs> but those people who do recognize in a child some propensity or some desire to do a something often uh, are surprised by just how amazing and successful that person can be. Mm. That child can be. What can I become? Yeah, so if you, if you look at your own children, and uh, they're all different, <laughs> they all came here with a different purpose, mm. and then nurture, their, nurture them as a sentient being and connected to you. We're all connected. This is the other part of it. Yes. So this separation uh the idea that we're separate and that nationalism is a good idea and all this kind of nonsense uh, just goes out the window uh and you see that we if we're ever going to communicate with more intelligent life we've got to get a whole lot more intelligent first the other aspect of this uh model too is that we're wasting our time using radio telescopes to talk to uh highly intelligent civilizations because they wouldn't use radio yes It'd be like using smoke signals, you know, to, to intercontinental, mm. <laughs> you know, transfer of data. It just doesn't work. 
uh, they're not stupid enough to use something where you, the uh, fastest conversation you could have would be uh, with a nine year um, turnaround time to the nearest star. Yes. No, no. All, you, all matter in the universe is connected in real time. And this is exactly how gravity works. Uh, the earth is responding to all the matter in the universe in real time. So how do we speak to more intelligent? Oh, uh, the speed of thought. Thought is infinite speed. Mm. <laughs> As you can see, this absolutely changes everything. Yes. Mm. And more and more, I hear the similar, similar sort of messages coming to me, whether it's through scientists, you know, an open-minded scientist like yourself, or yeah, I've also had other scientists before, you know, quantum physicist who's telling me about, you know, particles, doesn't matter how far apart they are, yeah. they're spinning together at the same time. Yeah, the, the electric um, universe, that's not spooky. <laughs> yes, because with it being all connected. Yeah. And, and yet you can go into more deeper, older spiritual realms that look at the connectedness and the unity mm. consciousness mm. And, and infinite consciousness. And, yes. and, and they all start coming together. Yeah, all the woo-woo aspects of quantum theory are not woo-woo at all in the, in the electric universe because the experimenter is part of the experiment. Yeah. If you decide to do something in the middle of an experiment, then that will have an effect, even if you think about it. Uh, it's not spooky at all. You are connected to everything in that experiment, including the particles that you're playing with. Mm. So this, this, so going back to the question, how does this change? It's changed everything because we are all connected. We are all, mm. you know, we are all in this together. Yes. Um, there is no escaping mm -mm. and therefore the ability to communicate outwards is also by going further inwards yes i think um, i mentioned that i wrote an article in the secular heretic the canadian journal mm. uh, which has just started up that's an arts type of journal but i wrote it uh, because it, of the title of their journal the secular heretic and here am i a heretic in the scientific realm and uh it's it's been interesting to see the response to that it's been very good simply because i've tried to paint this coherent <clears throat> big picture and that's what the electric universe is it's always been for me this huge puzzle jigsaw puzzle with all of these pieces and so i'm i spend more than half the day usually just reading scientific reports and checking to see whether those reports, uh, once I've looked at it, I can fit it into the puzzle. And if I can't, then I, I've got more work to do. But in uh, the last few years, the bits that don't fit have reduced to almost nothing. Uh, and the surprises that scientists are continually reporting in the science news are not a surprise to me. They, they just fit. You know, I can see where they fit. And this is a good test. Uh, of a cosmology and it can be in any field it can be in biology chemistry nuclear physics uh anything mm. Mm. 
So how, all right, I'll come back to that question in a minute. Um, how does this link to, so we've got very much the cos, yeah, the stars, the cosmology and everything around it. We've got us as sentient beings. What about the planet as a living being? Yeah, we're an intimate part of the earth. Uh, mm. This is one thing that's not considered by all of these uh, people who are suggesting we colonize Mars and the moon or anywhere else. We will no longer be earthlings if we do. And so yeah. you cannot, uh, you cannot predict the consequences. Um, I mean, you send people into space on these, um, you know, these uh, space station, send them up there for months and when they come back they're almost crippled you know they have to uh, regenerate their bones and muscles and everything to function in our present situation but there's far more to it than that on a very subtle level uh, we are energetically a part of the earth so this idea that if we mess this earth up we can go elsewhere is nonsense in fact i've often thought that um in a homeopathic sense, uh, anybody who sets off for a long journey in space should um, have a homeopathic signal uh, sent to them uh, just to maintain contact with the earth. And the consciousness of earth. Yeah. yeah. Homeopathy, I mean, is a no-brainer when you understand the electric universe and a lot of the so-called um, uh, natural therapies, which based on subtle energy, they call it, well, it is subtle, <laughs> it's very subtle, um, but it is nonetheless uh, electric resonances between similar conformed uh, molecules, biological molecules, and life itself is dependent upon uh, instructions from beyond the body uh, to build it. Uh, it's part of your consciousness. And so people who look at auras and all of this kind of thing can suddenly begin, we can actually start to begin doing science on the things which at present are taboo. Yes. And no, no subject should be taboo unless you can uh, critically uh, point out the faults in it. And no scientist has been able to do that with these things. I mean, uh, homeopathy was uh, the major form of therapies in uh, some European countries and, uh, and still is. Hmm. And some of the best work on bioenergetics in that field are being, is being done in Germany. Uh, and, but this is not taught. In fact, it's taboo. And anyone who raises it at university will be uh, <laughs> pointed out, the error of their ways will be pointed out in no uncertain manner. Mm -hmm. uh, and um, it's also rather saddening to see the kind of behavior of um, governments at, on the advice of experts and the things they're doing, which are totally misguided. Um, there's so much to be done. Uh, what I do is I paint the big picture. I cannot go into the, the finest detail because I just, yeah. you know, one man can't do it. But I can point to uh, things which uh, I think will work. And I think the best example I can give is our Sapphire experiment, which is uh, to reproduce a star in the laboratory and it's worked mm. for a few million dollars. We've done what uh, governments have been trying to do around the world, uh, countless billions of dollars over the years to produce fusion energy like the sun. But that's an assumption. They assume that their crackpot model is how this, all stars work, but it's so complicated and so unlikely you imagine 
it's a kind of a version of the hydrogen bomb, which doesn't, it just goes off slowly. But if that was the case, that's the most unstable system I can think of. So the night sky should look like the 4th of July with stars exploding all over the place. Yeah. You know, it's just a, it is a crackpot story, but it was made up at a time when nuclear energy had been first discovered. And the science of uh, plasma behavior, the universe is bathed in plasma, that's charged particles and uh, magnetic and electric fields. That science was in its infancy. It's just the poor timing. And so everyone went wild with the idea, wow, all that energy locked up in matter. Electricity moves through. Yeah. The, um, so it was just a, uh, an unhappy coincidence that uh, Eddington um, at that time jumped on the notion that uh, the only way to keep the sun shining for billions of years was to uh, invoke nuclear energy. And then they had the problem of, well, how do we do that? And so they then built a model which had no reference at all to what was seen in the sky. In other words, they didn't look at the granulations uh, in any detail to see that they don't conform to convection. They didn't look at the fact that sunspots are dark, which suggests that whatever's underneath that bright outer region is cool underneath. In the electric universe model, it is cool. The stars and planets are made exactly the same way in the same process at the same time. Then they're not, uh, planets are not built from leftovers. Uh, they're all built at the same time. So a star has a planetary style interior, uh, quite a large one, uh, but it then has an extensive atmosphere, which may be you know, 100,000 kilometers or several hundred thousand kilometers deep. And right at the very top, in what we would call the ionosphere uh, is electrical activity taking place, which generates nuclear energy at the same time in a benign way, in a controlled way, one which uh, actually has a transistor action to control the uh, brightness of the output. That's why they shine so steadily. Mm. And we've reproduced it in the laboratory and shown that it works. Even to the point of the nuclear reactions, we've shown that uh, uh, the bright, the sunshine is largely—it's all happening in front of our eyes. It's—it's it's transforming the lighter elements into heavier elements in uh, what I call uh, catalytic nuclear reactions. You don't need to smash atoms together. All you do is uh, nuclear chemistry. Only to do nuclear chemistry, you do it in a plasma. You don't do it in a test tube. <laughs> and nobody's interested in this. Oh yes, there, there are some people very interested in it. Yes, I was going to say. Uh, but uh, no one, is, I mean, this would have been uh, absolute head, headline news if it was known and accepted generally, but we have this huge uh, titanic of modern science <laughs> and trying to turn that around, I think it'll have to hit the iceberg. <laughs> That's all that'll stop it. Mm. Um, uh, there's so much invested in maintaining steady as she goes in big organizations and uh, science has become one of the biggest. Um, and uh, no, it'll be like in the past, it, it requires a revolution to uh, stop the, um, to change course. Mm. 
But so course, revolutions generally occur when people are, are fed up with what's going on and people yeah. are pretty fed up with what's going on right now. <laughs> yes. Yes. It doesn't seem like science is helping us a great deal. At the moment. Yeah. <laughs> so if somebody, um, if somebody's intrigued by this, um, short of going on, um, your YouTube channel, which has got some great movies on there to bring people in. What are sort of the top three or four things to consider, which can start sparking that interest for the lay person? I think it, it's a case of finding out uh, something that is of interest to you. And uh, with our meetings, we have covered all sorts of subjects, including electric biology and um, uh, it's not it's not all about space you know uh, we have rupert sheldrake has spoken at a number of our conferences going back to about you know, 2000 and well, the early 2000s anyway certainly the idea of morphic resonance sort of that's right in. because i picked up on his work uh, shortly after he published that because i realized that he was going in the same direction i was and that was this connectedness uh, with something beyond uh, the body uh, that, and I mean, this has been tested in laboratories and found to work, uh, ESP, remote viewing, things like that. In fact, our Sapphire experiment, the first one we did, which was just a bell jar, just to test the concept, to make sure we could actually produce the phenomena we needed, uh, was right next door to the um, Faraday cage they used for remote viewing experiments uh, some years earlier which proves that it works, you know, you cannot shield thought. Thought and gravity, they're the same force, actually, the same force, pass through matter, you know, <laughs> through, yeah. doesn't matter what it is, it's, it's available. Well, this is why you can have living uh, creatures discovered, you know, kilometers below the surface and at the bottom of the ocean deeps. Uh, they get their signals just the same as we do on the surface because you cannot shield from it. Hmm. So we're saying, what, what are the first three or four things people can get their heads around? Oh, yeah. okay. Um, uh, David Talbot and I wrote uh, two books uh, back uh, quite some years ago now. Uh, the first one was called Thunderbolts of the Gods, which outlays uh, Dave Talbot's thesis, but then uh, sort of at the end of it, hints about the electric universe um, model and then uh, we did the electric universe uh, we co-authored the two books he is the top author in the first one i'm the top author in the second now in that first book the electric universe um, i pulled my punches quite a bit i didn't want to uh, <laughs> include too much so it's mostly about astronomy uh, but I'm working right now on the book, which will cover the whole lot. And uh, hopefully, you know, have it published before long. But uh, that will chart the sequence of ideas and as they occurred and how it all fits together. Uh, and, um, you know, it's chapter and verse for people. So that when people ask me questions, which they do in large numbers, I yeah. can just refer them to, you know, have a look at chapter so-and-so or... <laughs> so you'd be pretty empty after that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm looking forward to maybe a, a bit of respite. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, I think what is it you said to me yesterday when we spoke, it's the book I need to write before I die. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. It's got to come out of me. Super. What, um, what have you learned about yourself on this journey with the Electric Universe? Oh, quite a few things. Uh, at some point, I recognised that my intuition was the chief guide. Um, that I intuitively respond to something when uh, I think it's right. And that would, well, that occurred with the Electric Sun model mm. when I first read it back in um, about 1972. And so, and then, but then it takes me years to overcome this problem that everyone does. No, certainly all the experts can't be wrong. You know, how am I ever going to present this without looking like an idiot? And this happened to me when I had realized that Einstein had to go, uh, you know, just yeah. a few small things like that. <laughs> um, uh, how do I explain this to people? And then, then that's the real problem. How do I explain this in ways that uh, the uh, common man will understand uh, without, you know, using a whole lot of language, which is largely meaningless. Uh, I think people have recognized in me, uh, an obsession with this, but it's not an obsession so much as a realization that uh, this is my inspiration. This is what I'm here to do. Mm. It's like somebody who realizes they would want to be a great dancer or a singer or something like that. Um, I realized that I was on this path as a young boy before even teenage. Um, you know, I used to ask my dad questions about why doesn't the earth um, uh, just spiral into the sun, you know, and, he couldn't answer it, but it was a question, you know, that I felt needed answering. <laughs> um, things like that. So it's been a lifelong adventure. There's been a quiet connection with a deep sense of knowing in this. Yes. Uh, also, I've been blessed with uh, Air Force standard eyesight for most of my life, so that I needed it when I'm scanning things at high speed. Because I tend to uh, look to the headlines, you know, and if there's something there that stands out, then I'll read further and deeper. Um, otherwise, I'd never get through all the material because it, it can be any subject that will, you know, something will just strike me. I think, hang on, that's interesting. I better look at that. Um, so I'm not restricted to any one subject. Yeah. How, fact, um, I was, just, I was just going to say that um, I think the best indication of that was that at university, uh, doing a science degree, I was the only one amongst the science people who haunted the anthropology shelves of the uh, uh, university library. And the reason for doing that was to just to check that uh, Bilikovsky hadn't cherry picked his uh, sources. But once I got started, I realized no, he certainly hasn't. He could have just, you know, <laughs> He could have written the 10 books and filled it with uh, data, uh, which matched uh, what he was saying. Mm. How, do you, um, how do you keep yourself grounded through all of this? Because it must get heady stuff after a while. How do I what? How do you keep yourself grounded? Oh, uh, I have a family. Right. I have three daughters, a, a dear wife who's stood by me uh, in my obsessions all these years. And uh, I've got nine grandchildren and one great granddaughter. So I've got plenty of uh, grounding. <laughs> earthing runs. Yeah, and earthing. <laughs> yeah, superb. 
And the last question I, um, I ask all my guests on WA Real is that, um, and it's a hypothetical one, but I enjoy the answer from all my guests, is that if you could take um, one nugget of information and just load it into collective consciousness so everybody just gets it, what would that be? Hmm, that's a good question. I think the, the thing that is most important, and it's something that occurred to Velikovsky at the end of his life, and he talks about it in Mankind in Amnesia, is that if we are to heal from our irrational behavior, we must understand our past. And there was a Canadian uh, uh, documentary done uh, called uh, The Bonds of the Past, uh, which was recorded in 1972 by the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation. And that is a very personal uh, interview and look at Velikovsky's work. And at the end of that, he describes his fears for mankind. And he said the only way uh, for man to have a, a future on this planet is to understand his past his and her past um, yes. the um and this i think is critical once you understand our past it is such an amazing story there's no science fiction story ever written that can come near it uh just trying to imagine what our forebears had to put up with uh you realize why they built all those weird stone structures around the world they were shelters in fact the, the druids knew <laughs> they were shelters but nobody's listening because they've got no context with what our forebears experienced is totally beyond our understanding because there's nothing like it today. Mm. We thought we were doomed. We were, we'd had it. The earth was being destroyed before our very eyes. And yet we came through it. Yes. An amazing story. Well, this has been absolutely riveting talking to you today. If people want to come and find out more about you and the Thunderbolts project, where can they go? Uh, my personal website, which is a kind of a um, historical repository, it shows my progress from back in 1998 or so uh, to today. So some of the earlier articles will have errors in them, small errors. <laughs> um, Thunderbolts.info is our main uh, website where the public can get involved. There's a forum, there's all sorts of means of getting involved. It's a non-profit organization set up in the US. Uh, and uh, it's got links everywhere. And the number of subscribers uh, is in the, I forget, it's 150,000 or more at present. And our uh, YouTube videos, I think, are over 5 million uh, views of our video, some of them feature length. Yeah. And uh, the works of Dave Talbot, uh, his series of videos paint the picture of what the ancients went through. Superb. Plenty of stuff to go and dive into there then. Oh, yes. yes. You get lost, I'm afraid. <laughs> we need a roadmap. <laughs> there you go. Wallace, thank you very much for your time. Yeah, thanks, Brent, for the opportunity. Cheers.